This is Cinephile. This is incredible. One of the best actors alive here on the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Viggo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brockmeyer, and I completely punted that one. Nolan has crafted a tight, gripping, deeply involving, and unforgettable film that ranks about the best war movies of the decade. That's from Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times. At long last, we'll discuss Dunkirk in all its splendor and glory. Great to have you back with us. We'll get to lots of stories in just a second. But on a, on a somber note, you know, they always say death comes in threes. And three come in recently. George A. Romero, of course, legendary director of Night of the Living Dead. Highly influential. If you like The Walking Dead, you like zombies, it all goes back to him. Martin Landau passed away at the age of 89. Landau, people always get angry about this because he won Best Supporting Actor of the Year that many felt Sam Jackson should have won for Pulp Fiction. Now, I agree Sam Jackson should have won for the character of Jules in Pulp Fiction 1994. But Landau is sensational in Ed Wood. He pays Bella Lugosi, and he's he's incredible. I mean, he's just ranting about Boris Karloff and has this paternal relationship with Johnny Depp, who's the worst director of all time, Ed Wood. And there's this constant refrain of, help me, Eddie, because he's, you know, hooked on smack. Uh, Ed Wood is a phenomenal film. Uh, you should go back and see it if you haven't seen it and honor Martin Landau. And John Hurd passed away. John Hurd, everyone knows Home Alone, but I loved him in uh, Big. He's really good. And I just seen, remember I reviewed Scorsese's After Hours. John Hurd has a small role as a bartender. It's a small role, but a pivotal role, one might say. So rest in peace to George A. Romero, John Hurd, and Martin Landau. As always, give us some love for Cinephile on iTunes. Rate and review. I give my reviews in a four Maple Leafs. Uh, but you can give it out of five stars. My man RT now listen to the podcast. Appreciate that. Also, a lot of feedback to my brother's top ten. Once again, Z E E S H A N V. You can hit him up on Twitter. Although my friend Mike Benzani, Bonds loved it. He said that that is my kind of list because Bonds loves a good little superhero story. So he did get some uh, support from others. And my man Mark Calmanici, who I'd asked him last time to send me his top ten, he then hustled and sent me his top ten movies of all time. So. We can discuss Yojimbo, Seven Samurai, Raging Bull, Bicycle Thief, 2001, another time. His list is great. But his top ten of the century, and the only because there's a couple, Dan, I feel that we did not touch on. Number ten is Spirited Away, which the New York Times had at number two. Neither of us have seen it. Uh, the Artist. Stop it. Okay, fine. Drive, which I didn't like. It was well-reviewed. I didn't like it, except for Albert Brooks. I thought Albert Brooks should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, Ryan Gosling's in it. I thought it was very mediocre, so I completely disagree with him there. Number seven, Kill Bill. Number six is Requiem for a Dream, which I had. The Lives of Others, which is sensational. Number five, foreign film. It's about a guy who's wiretapping on a couple, and then he has a change of heart. It's fabulous. You should go watch The Lives of Others if you haven't seen it. Number four was Million Dollar Baby. Number three was The Dark Knight. Number two was The Departed. And number one, Children of Men. Phenomenal tracking shot. Clive Owen? Yes. <laughs> okay. Dystopian <laughs> Children of Men. Did we ever get uh, Ben Lyons top ten? No. Lyons told, me, Lyons told me he's moving. He's now moved. I, t- I spoke to him yesterday. He's now moved. He's living in Venice. Uh, almost famous is all we know, which if I can offend some people, you ever seen a person of color say they love almost famous? Any color or? <laughs> yes. That's, that is a, definitely a white guy movie. I, I don't see many. I don't know any person of color who's ever been like, man, I loved almost famous. It's generally white guys, 20s and 30s. Want to be rock and roll stars. Fell in love once. Met a girl. Blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't know any. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I, I can't think of any. <laughs> But when you're like, oh, I love it too. I'm like, yeah, I, I could see that. 
<laughs> Hopefully lines will jump in at some point. Uh, thanks so much once again to all those who listened last time. Andy Sandberg was so funny. I saw a tour to pharmacy. I'm giving it three and a half maple leaves. It's not as funny as Popstar, although I'm happy. I've seen some people tweeting me, Chris Borg, Olivier, a few others saying that they're watching Popstar on my recommendation, which you definitely should. Uh, tour to pharmacy, the two best parts of it, Jeff Goldblum and Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, who does not want to get filmed. And Jeff Goldblum, who's just, I mean, it's Jeff Goldblum. The guy's the best. It's only 40 minutes. You'll find it on HBO. And thanks once again to Andy for coming on with us. And uh, one of my favorite moments of doing this podcast was the David Mamet Masterclass. Thanks to my friend Aaron Charles, who tweeted that he actually now got it, I think, from his parents as a present. Because uh, after he heard me speaking about it, love Mamet so much. I went back and watched Heist again the other day. Maybe a great bad movie. Like, I want to I lend it to Stanzik, see what he thinks of it. Because, I mean... There's, there's the dialogue's phenomenal. There's the one the the best line is Ricky Jay is talking to Sam Rockwell about Gene Hackman and Delroy Lindo. And he goes, "Is he cool?" And he goes, "He's so cool when he goes to bed, sheep count him." <laughs> it's just it's just great. Later on, he goes, "I want you to be as quiet as an ant peeing on cotton." He goes, "No, I want you to be as quiet as an ant, not even thinking about peeing on cotton." Later, Devito says, "Everybody wants money. That's why they call it money." So at times the dialogue's great. At times it almost veers into Mammoth self-parody. I, I, but I find it uh, a fun movie to watch because I like Mammoth's work so much. And, of course, the movie Homicide that I talk about a lot. Mike Diesenhoff and I are huge fans of that. You should go check that out. It's about uh, you know, self-realization. Speaking of Mammoth, Dan and I both avid readers read a book called The Force. The reason I read it by Don Winslow is because Mammoth is adapting it. As I mentioned on the previous podcast, Mammoth hasn't had a big hit in a long time. I mean, I saw China Doll on Broadway, which was awful, starring my guy Pacino. Uh, Red Belt was terrible. That was 2008. So Heist is 2001. That's 16 years ago that I went back and saw again. He has not had many hits recently. So this is a big deal. It's 70-year-old David Mamet is adapting what's a really popular true crime book out right now. It's, you know, bestseller, all the rest of it. And James Mangold is directing it. So I read the book. It's outstanding. If you love uh, cops and robbers like I do in the crime genre, Dark, gritty, filled with the kind of dialogue that I think Mamet, I mean, it felt like Mamet wrote it. I was like, oh, I, I immediately uh, sent a tweet to Don Winslow, and he tweeted me back. And I was like, dude, the, the highest comp I can give you is while reading your book about cops in present-day New York. It felt like it was written by David Mamet. That's how good the dialogue was. So check out The Force, the book, and I cannot wait for the movie. And speaking of James Logan, who's going to adapt it, I have what would have been my favorite movie of the year, Logan, not just Logan, the black and white version of Logan, which is my favorite movie of 2017. Uh, and we're offering it as a free giveaway here. Three disc set, limited edition. I only saw it once. So we'll call it previously owned, but I just watched the black and white versions. The actual Logan DVD, I didn't even see it yet. It's brand new. Here's the trivia question for you. What is the name of the actor who once starred on ER, who Logan and Patrick Stewart and the girl befriend Midway through the film. George Clooney. I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't know. You're going to have to give me the answer, though. That's how this normally works. Yes. You tweet us, cinephile ESPN. What is the name of the actor, Logan and company, used to be on ER, that they befriend? You tweet us, a cinephile ESPN, you get your free copy of Logan. We're almost there to talking about Dunkirk. But one other thought here. Because when I, I kept thinking about Dunkirk, I could not imagine me that I was more excited for, which, which raised me this time. Please tweet us. What's the last movie you were that hyped for? Once again, Cinephile ESPN. Uh, and I had to, Gangs of New York is when I remember, like, I was breathless with anticipation because <laughs> I'd read the Vanity Fair article about it and Marty and Harvey Weinstein collaborating, legendary director, legendary producer, first time Leo and Marty, Daniel Day-Lewis, five years out of retirement. Like, there were so, I mean, budgets wildly over, over budget. It's production delays, Fellini's Chinatita Studios. Dan's yawning in my face. He wasn't as excited as I was. But I remember Gangs in New York, Christmas Day 20, 2002. I'm like, and, and it lived up to the hype. Now, a movie that you're really hyped up for that's disappointed, also tweet us, Cinephile ESPN, Foxcatcher. I remember reading about Foxcatcher since the Cannes Film Festival. I'm like, look at Steve Carell playing uh, DePone. Like, this guy looks like a freak. He's going to get an Oscar nomination. Like, oh, what a cast. Channing Tatum, Ruffalo. I love Ruffalo. And you watch it, and I remember I drove like to Danbury. It was at least an hour away that I drove. It was it wasn't quite like silence level. I remember it was like I gotta find Foxcatcher. And I'm like, that's it. Like, what, what the hell is this movie? Dan, give me a movie you were really excited about and lived up to expectations, and a movie you were really excited about that did not live up to expectations. I actually have one of each. I'm surprised. Uh, the last movie I remember being this excited about and it living up to expectations was The Dark Knight. And went opening night, whole big thing, 
and it lived up. By the way, I've been told, I haven't seen it in a while, but I'm told history has not been too kind to The Dark Knight. Like, if you go back and watch it, the extra, like, 25 minutes kind of drags on you, but that's okay. a separate conversation. Sure. The movie I was pumped up to see and did not live up to the expectations, there's actually two of them, and they both star my man, Denzel. Oh, one was fallen. Safe House, <laughs> and the other one was American Gangster. Both were terrible. Can't believe you sat through Safe House. And what went wrong with American Gangster? Like, you go, him, Russell Crowe, gangsters? I'm like, I'm in. And you're like, what is this? Completely derivative, unmemorable. Yeah, those are two excellent choices. My brother, it's a Pulp Fiction is one that he was excited for, met the expectations. Mad Max, can't agree with him on this one, that he was disappointed by. Star Wars Phantom Menace is a good pick. A movie you were fired up for, like, God, Jar Jar Binks, the most reviled character. In recent memory. Tweet us once again. Movie you were hyped for and movie that you were not excited for. Sometimes you can go the other way, too. Movie you didn't think would be very good and then end up surprising you. My brother said Spotlight was a movie like that for him. Yeah, a bunch of journalism. What do I care? And he's like, yeah, it's actually pretty good. So tweet us uh, your thoughts on that topic. The moment of truth. Of course, by the way, we've got great guests coming up. Malcolm Lee, the director of Girls Trip, which is a huge hit. Steve Gutenberg, yes, 80s icon is coming up momentarily. I'm going to ask him about Police Academy and also what he's been up to ever since the, those great hits from the 1980s. In honor of Christopher Nolan, he will be, rather than an actor's showcase, we're going director showcase. First time ever, Nolan will get his treatment. The top five movies of him and also some streaming suggestions. And for Scorsese's stories, I went back and watched a movie I know Dan has seen. I don't know if Dan likes it or not. Shutter Island. Watch it again. We'll discuss Shutter Island. We're going to go deep into this one. This will be extended edition of Scorsese stories. I made notes about this one. All right. Kind of like when we did the Oscars, we went pre and then we went to the movie and then post. That's what we're going to do with Dunkirk. So the pregame, me, Dan Stanzik, Steve Cerruti, one of the producers of the Rosillo show. Listen, it's rare we get out. Okay. Me, Dan and, and Cerruti have not seen a movie since uh, Gone Girl. So, I mean, listen, uh, by and large, a lot of that, you know, people are going to say, oh, well, how do you not make time? Dan wakes up at 2.30 every morning. So his schedule is just atrocious. Um, so anyways, it's nice. The three of us get to go out, and it's a Thursday night. Dunkirk opens on Friday the 21st. Hey, Thursday night, we're all going to go up for dinner. Dan at jury duty. Sarudi's got major news coming the next day, which he just completely omitted from telling us, which is a real <laughs> black mark on him. But we go out, and we know it's going to be a tight time crunch. 7 o'clock, movies at 9.30, Norwalk, Connecticut, which is about an hour 15 away. So we get there. Dan can verify. As soon as I sat down, bone in New York. Like, I'm not messing around. Let's get this thing going. We catch up, work talk, make fun of our coworkers, spread some gossip. And then, literally, Max Bradoff shows up. And Max says, I'm not feeling that great. I'm like, what? Like, Max is now done. And I said, no, I already bought the ticket. You can't do that. Otherwise, you have to pay for the ticket. Okay, well, I'll see how it goes. After 10 minutes of just feeling our positive vibe, he's now in for the movie. Although he did think it was ridiculous that we were driving an hour, 15 minutes to go see Dunkirk in 70-millimeter IMAX. Anyways, it's now like 8.04. We need to leave by 8.15. Hard out. 8.04. Dan and I eat the steak four minutes each. Saruti, who wanted mashed potatoes, got maybe a couple scoops, did not finish his steak. Max only had a drink, so we're fine. Now we're, we're flying to get down there. There's a road closure, a lot of backseat driving. I was speeding the whole way, but it obviously wasn't enough because, you know, what are you going to do? And by the way... When you're going to a movie like this, there's so much hype in it. You can feel the excitement. Now, granted, Max probably wasn't the level of the three of us. But you want to get hype with a little music, little tunes. Like, like when Public Enemy, Welcome to the Terror Dome came on, like, I am so pumped now. And then Brett Oss gets to handle the controls. Dan, please tell the audience what music he wanted to hear before seeing Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. See, I think you may be asking the wrong one. Saruti would be hating on Max's musical selections, but I was all in on the Steely Dan. You guys just you guys didn't appreciate Max's wide berth of musical knowledge he's an international man of mystery and he likes pretty much every song ever and so you just gotta you just gotta vibe with it there's nobody funnier we're gonna get him on snuffle at some point just to do his impressions richard burton sean connery etc but there's no better guy with lousier taste in music like it's just steely dan and then we had fleetwood mac it was three to one against you what? guys no don't... what are you hating on fleetwood mac fleetwood for mac dreams before he goes see a story Great song. about a rescue operation yeah. in 1940 <laughs> I see no issue with that. Get there at 9. Now, by the way, Moose Church 9.30. We got there at 9.40. Shruti and I were confident, like, ah, 10, 15 minutes of trailers. Although in my head, I said, hang on a second. 70 millimeter IMAX the night before. They're not messing around with trailers. This thing's probably starting on time. Park the car. We start running frantically in the streets of Norwalk, Connecticut. We don't know where we're going. 
We went the wrong way. No, we're running back the other way. I'm in flip-flops. It's perspiring. We run in. I got the tickets well, online. In fairness, yeah. you should point out that we saw the movie at 70-millimeter IMAX in, a, in an aquarium. <laughs> and so we were asking people where a movie theater was. So they told us to go to one street where there's an actual legitimate movie theater. Right. But that's not where we were seeing the movie. We were right. seeing the movie at this IMAX theater in an aquarium. That's correct. So, so we, that's why we were lost. And we were full-on sprinting. Oh, my God. Like, it's full lather. We run in there. Like, where do you put the tickets? So like, just go in there. I'm like, okay, I'm like, I guess you don't have to pay for tickets. Like, I'm still holding the paper. We meet our buddy Rob Lemley, who was there, Lem sitting similar directions. So we missed, yes, we missed the first five to ten minutes of Dunkirk. Shame on us. Having said that, the 70-millimeter IMAX is an absolute must. And now we get to the movie at hand. It is an absolute assault on the senses. It's reminiscent of Mad Max Fury Road. It forgoes conventional narrative and character development for an immersive you-are-there immediacy, which ultimately, despite the sound and fury, achieves intimacy, which is incredible. I don't know how Nolan did it. And, I mean, there's no tricks. There's no shortcuts. It intercuts between three different stories. So we're going land and sea and air. And the air in particular, the spectacular aerial sequences with Tom Hardy. As Dan will tell you, at one point he felt it was dizzying. And amazingly, Nolan keeps it up the entire time. He's intercutting between these three stories. It's his shortest film since his debut, the movie following, back in 1998. Uh, there's no unnecessary subplots. Those who are not going to like it are going to say, what about the character development? I don't need to know that uh, Charlie's got a mom-and-pop store back in London and a girl who cares about him. We've seen movies like that before. This isn't that kind of movie. And that's what is so gutsy about Nolan's experiment. He's going for, just like I said, that immersive intimacy. He just wants to show you what's happening to these people. And you care about them because they're other human beings, because you see the, the fresh fakes, uh, faces of shock and terror. And what Dunkirk is about is about a group of British soldiers who were stranded in France and then had to rely on civilians uh, to travel on their own boats to rescue them. And many point to it as a pivotal moment in the war. They said if the English hadn't done this, they may have capitulated to the Germans, and then who knows what would have happened. Instead, Churchill's men come through uh, with a flourish. It's a movie in which the action is going to be huge. People are already asking, okay, what about Best Picture, et cetera? Listen, I think it's the best war film since Saving Private Ryan. So in that time, the Hurt Locker won Best Picture. Catherine Bigelow won Best Director. You know, we've seen a movie like Black Hawk Down receive a lot of plaudits. It's far too early to speculate, but I would I would hazard a guess. Best Picture, Best Director, and a slew of, of at least nominations uh, for all the technical categories. Obviously, sound design, cinematography is gorgeous. And the music by Hans Zimmer is amazing because it, it literally goes from start to finish. You know, There's a real paucity of dialogue. Instead, Nolan is just relying on Zimmer's music to carry you through. And here's the difference. If it was Spielberg, he'd be relying on, you know, some, and as much as I like Spielberg, obviously he's a master cinema, but he'd be relying on some cheap sentimental tricks. You definitely get some flashbacks and some unnecessary love stories and the blah, blah, blah. And the John Williams score would be heavily sentimental. Zimmer's score is not obtrusive. At times, you can obviously feel it, but, it, I mean, it's weighty. I thought he, he perfectly captured the tone of what you need in a war film amidst all the, the sound and bombast. And a movie like this, which is purely surviving on its technical expertise, it should be noted, the performance of Mark Rylance, who is the face of common man decency, the embodiment of every... English man and woman who's just going there to help. Tim Kirchin just saw the film, texted me. He loved the line Rylan says, you know, people my age, men my age are deciding this war, so I feel like I should be helping to fight it. And my friend Mike Kiss, who loves movies like me, my old buddy way back from Ryerson, I know he loves Christopher Nolan, so I knew he'd like this movie. He had texted me about Rylan's characters motivated by duty are often portrayed as stony and rigid. That guy felt everything he was doing. Racing, to, uh, spoiler alert, Racing to save the pilot and yelling to his son he might be alive was a highlight of the film. No tricks, no shortcuts, intercuts. It's really well done. Also, for those wondering about uh, just film history, and then I'm going to hand this off to Dan. I want him to give an extended review. Dunkirk has been told, by the way, in Hollywood, Mrs. Miniver, which won six Oscars back in 1942. It's directed by William Wyler, and it's about the war, uh, World War II set, and it's focused on an English upper-middle-class family. And the story of Dunkirk is actually in the film. At one point, they talk about, okay, civilians are going in their boats to go catch it. So for those wondering, has Dunkirk ever been told on the Hollywood scale before? 1942, six Oscars were given to Mrs. Miniver, which did have Dunkirk as part of the story. Before we go post-party, Dan, give us your take on Dunkirk. See, I don't have, like, an extended review like you did, like the one time I crushed whatever terrible Robert De Niro film you had me the watch. The Comedian. Oh, sweet mercy. Don't even remind me. 
Um, but I was there, like you said, dizzying aspects watching. You have to see it in the 70 millimeter. The plane scenes with Tom Hardy are incredible. Um, but I would ask you, and I think I know your answer already, the movie is great, technically phenomenal, but does that make it a great movie? Or is it just, I mean, I've compared it, as you did as well, to Mad Max, and people are like, well, why would you compare it to Mad Max? There's no obvious parallel. And I'm like, well, it's a two-hour, all-action, all-adrenaline the entire time. I understand one is war and one is dystopian future, right. but the, the sense you get and the feelings you get... I didn't think Mad Max was, like, one of the best movies of the decade or the, the century. And all these people are like, it is. I got all these Oscar nominations. But I didn't think of it as a great movie. It was like an exhilarating thrill ride. But maybe it's just the way that I, I, I go to movies and I'm looking to think and to brood and to understand and to think deeply. This one, I was just like, all right, it was an awesome action movie. Yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely, like you said, you have to see it 70-millimeter IMAX. Because, by the way, for those who keep asking and tweeting me, that you see 40% more of the screen. So, basically, the screen is more vertical rather than just being horizontal. And, by the way, Nolan shot it specifically. His cinematographer shot it on IMAX cameras and 65-millimeter cameras. That's why it's so critical. You know, in this world now, Shruti tells you minimalism is very popular among millennials. Everyone's like, I got one chair. I got one sofa. Well, you know what? That's what I love that Nolan did. He just blew this thing to smithereens. Like, no, no. Bigger is better. Go see this on a gigantic screen in an aquarium. That's what needs to be done. To your point, yeah, Mad Max definitely thrill ride for the ages. This one, like you said, spectacular action movie. But I thought Dunkirk in some ways goes deeper because I did think there was notes of intimacy amidst the spectacle. Whereas Mad Max is pure adrenaline. I did think Dunkirk offered emotion without being obvious about it. Um, you know, the one scene where you just see the one soldier just start to walk into the water and start to swim, you, you know he's going to die. Like, he has no chance. But, like, it's just gracefully done. And Mad Max does not really have those moments of uh, introspection. I'll accept that as an answer. I, I didn't view it as this unbelievable, awesome movie. I, I think just the fact that it came out in July, I think, lends to my point. I think the, if the movie came out in late December... right you'd be like, all right, this is going to be one of the best movies. I, I think it's like you can't do a summer movie as good as you can do this one. Mm -hmm. But if you want to be best picture and win best picture and get all of that, I, I think it, you kind of would have tailored it differently. Am I crazy? No, I mean, that's true. Because I mean, it's a pretty big gamble from Nolan because you're right. If you just wanted to go Oscars, then you, you're right. You definitely go later in the year. But they're going to try to have it both ways. And as Ben Lyons pointed out to me when we talked, he said – he goes, no, it might actually be a good strategy because now they own the summer for critics. Like, it's 93% Rotten Tomatoes, open to 50 million, huge hit. But then you can re-release it because then it comes on DVD. You can re-release on DVD in December, and you can hit the voters again there. So Because you actually end up hitting them twice. So it's a it's a different strategy, but it may actually work. So uh, curious to see what happens. So Dunkirk, you liked it. Yeah, I'm not going three and a half Maple Leafs like you are. I'd probably just do a solid three. Right, oh, you went four. I Who went am I four, kidding? You haven't I, mentioned it yet, but I know yeah, you yeah. tweeted you went four. I went four. If it wasn't 70-millimeter IMAX, it'd be three and a half. Fair is point. It, is okay. that fair? Right? Because yeah. I think we just saw a regular movie theater. Like, all right, it was really well done. Okay. Hour 46. What do you it. have to say for it? Be, of course, it's a war movie, but I right. think you only see two women in the entire film, and they're both <laughs> nurses. <laughs> Listen, Nolan's not going to focus on that. He's like, you know what? I, I'm not going to be... Uh, Partial to the sexes. Of course, women are involved in the war, but we're just going to tell us from the guy. Listen, this is just Tom Hardy in an airplane, right? That's all we care about here. Also, does not mention the Nazis. Never once says Nazis. I think they only see the enemy. You never see a swastika. It was interesting. It's, I think in some ways he felt it was more intimidating maybe just to have a faceless enemy, or he just wanted to focus on these heroes. Like, that's how uh, tunnel vision you have with the story. I'm not sure exactly why necessarily, but... Yeah, and I think, by the way, for anybody who's like, oh, I'll just catch it on DVD, I think then it'd be like three Maple Leafs. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, oh, it's, a, it's an event. It's a movie spectacle. So now post-show, Dunkirk. <laughs> Dan and I immediately make a beeline to the bathroom because we, we were running, we were sweating. And, and after we relieve ourselves, a guy recognizes Dan. He said, he goes, your voice sounds familiar. I, I think he recognized you. I don't think that was the case. I don't think that's the case. I think he said... Your voice sounds familiar, and he knows you from Cinephile. I mean, no, not from Cinephile. Okay, Probably from, from somewhere else. I mean, I, I, total brag alert. I have been recognized before. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but I was once at an Italian restaurant with my cousin Tim. Owner of the restaurant came up to us, and he says, Has anyone ever told you that you look like Dan Stanzik? He said, I am Dan Stanzik. Free meal. On oh, the house. probably the highlight of my life. Oh, it's tremendous.
So the Mac, so I don't know. Dan and I had an interesting conversation. The big thing, the 7 p.m. show, you get a shirt that says, I saw Dunkirk in 70 millimeters. So I thought we should see the 7 p.m., but honestly, we hadn't hung out in a while. Better to have a meal and go. Uh, and then there was just a shirt sitting. Somebody had left it. So I just immediately run over and grab it. I look at the usher. I'm like, is it okay? He's like, yeah, go ahead. So uh, August 17th, Mike and Mike, I'll, I'll wear my Dunkirk shirt then. We drive back. Brett Oss, at this point now, admits capitulation after mocking us severely for driving the hour 15 to go see it, did admit it was completely worth the 70-millimeter IMAX. We were all completely enthralled by it. More lousy music was played, but it's not even music that we know. Like, it's a lot of, like, even at one point, which I don't even know what this is. It's like Channel 27, like on, on Sirius. It's like he dominates the 20s. It's like all these, like, classic cuts, but they're not classics. Like, classic is Led Zeppelin. At one point, we had Led Zeppelin. Like, yeah, this is good. Black Dog. No, no, no. He's like, I'll find something else. A lot of 80s bad hair bands. That's the story of Dunkirk told in three parts. Spider-Man Homecoming I also saw. John Watts, the director, do we really need another Spider-Man? That's a big question everyone's asking. And surprisingly, yes, we do. And the reason I liked it, I'm giving it three Maple Leafs, is it's a good summer movie. It's entertaining. And I think it really, again, my brother's a Spider-Man expert, but it held true to the origins, which is that, you know, Peter Parker's a geek. Guy's in high school. He's like 15, 16 years old. He's just a nerd. He likes a girl. She didn't like him. And then he goes up and put, gets his spidey senses on and saves the planet. And I thought Tom Holland did an excellent job. It's not often you look at summer blockbusters and focus on acting, but he was perfectly cast as the fresh-faced Peter Parker. Michael Keaton, very good as Vulture. Uh, I thought it was a small role relatively early on, but he gets to show off some acting chops later on, especially once he recognizes who Peter is. It was a terrific scene, well-delivered, well-played by both of them. Um, later in the movie. And you also get a fair helping of Iron Man. Robert Downey Jr. is in the film. John Favreau is in the movie as well. So, again, holding its roots to the Marvel Universe. Solid action. Good summer movie. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs for Spider-Man Homecoming, the third reboot. I know it's excessive. I wouldn't say it's the best Spider-Man ever. Probably the best since uh, the Sam Raimi, uh, Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst collaboration. But I enjoyed it, and perhaps a little bit surprisingly so, Spider-Man Homecoming. Now to two movies that I didn't enjoy. The Last Face, which currently on Rotten Tomatoes has a 5% ranking. And let's just get this out of the way. I didn't think there would be a worse movie than Split for me, but this is the worst film I've seen of 2017. It is a jaw-dropping atrocity from director Sean Penn, and it stars Javier Bardem and Charlize Theron. With that kind of talent evolved, I said, I've got to see this movie. And then I was regretting it. And this is the epitome. Like, if anybody listening is a huge conservative that doesn't like, you know, liberal media or liberal agenda movies, this is the movie for you. Because you will look at this and go, see, Sean Penn is just taking this story, which is very important, about refugees and helping people overseas in war-torn nations, and then making just a preposterous movie. He's just forgetting the fact it's supposed to be entertaining and moving and actually done with integrity and grace. And I'll give you some examples of just how bad the dialogue is. At one point, Bardem, it's a love story, if you couldn't guess. Bardem and Shirley's thrown fall in love. At one point, he's joking about, oh, who can I grab? Who else can I grab here? And Jean Renault looks at him and says, it is not grabbing. It is loving. <laughs> Which is now going to be my catchphrase for the next two weeks. It is not grabbing. It is loving. They also have a love scene set to the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Other Side, which is now a song I hate more than any song ever done by Steely Dan. And after it has probably the, the worst scene of the year. She goes to the window. There's a close-up of a pencil. She picks it up with her foot. By the way, spoiler alert. If anyone wants to see this movie, I'm telling you not to see it. I'm going to go in-depth how crappy this movie is. She picks it up in her foot. Bardem rolls over post-coital. Goes over, picks it up, starts kissing her calf while she arches her back fully nude, exposing her bare butt to the audience. Like this, this is supposed to be Sean Penn showing, oh, look at their love together. There's a pencil and she picks it up with her foot and he goes there and starts kissing her calf. And well, there's her butt as she arches back. Like, what is this? Later, an ex-lover tells Bardem that she's HIV positive and admits as a spurned lover, she wishes he was too, since it would be so romantic. Later, the other side plays again in the car. Theron now exits the car since she hates the lyrics. It's like Bardem's autobiography. Like, I hate this song so much now. She then goes back, starts yelling at him, and gets her head caught in the window as he rolls it up. Then they witness this horrific slaughter of people. Like, talk about just a wild shift in tone. 
Climax involves a child slapping his father. Slap your paw! Fire your paw! I mean, it's so heavy-handed. Refugees are, are not like you and me, but they are us. Later on, there's a voiceover. She says, when I thought of him, I could feel my stomach, his ribs and bones. <laughs> and also a horrendous line. Maybe we'll go put it on a shirt. Before I met him, I was an idea. Now I am fully formed. The last face. It'll go down in history. Charlize Theron, Javier Bardem, directed by Sean Penn. It's awful, and you should avoid it. One more, I, Daniel Blake. By the way, I'm giving that movie. I should give it no Maple Leafs, but I'll just give it one Maple Leaf. For give the it a half. Okay, give it a half Maple Leaf. That's, that's the lowest you've ever done, then. Um, and one more for you. I, Daniel Blake, which is also awful. And I don't know how, because it won the, the Palme d'Or, which is the top prize. It won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival last year. And it's directed by Ken Loach, who's one of these world filmmakers. You know, the critics always love him. English filmmaker focuses on the downtrodden lower-class Brits, but I just think it's it's so predictable at this point. His story is so obvious what happens to this guy who's one of these marginalized Brits, English guy in his 50s, loses his job, can't get a job, dealing with bureaucracy, blah, blah, blah. I texted Lyons. I said, this movie's awful. How did this win the Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival? He said, I'll let you know on a secret. A lot of these festival movies stink. I said, that's fine. If you see a 320 film screen at the Toronto Film Festival and 280 stink, that's fine. I'll take that ratio. But the one that wins is normally pretty good. When the King's Speech wins the audience award at TIFF and goes on to win Best Picture, like, here we go. American Beauty does so. You're like, here we go. When Pulp Fiction wins the Palme d'Or at Cannes, you're like, great film. I, Daniel Blake. Maybe this explains why it took a year for it to American theaters. Because I can't imagine anyone enjoying it unless you're English, unless you know about that culture and just how tough it is to get a job right now, yada, yada, yada. I'm giving it one maple leaf. I would avoid I, Daniel Blake. Let's get to some guests. <laughs> Joining us now on Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, is Steve Gutenberg. Of course, I know him and love him from way back in the day. The movies like Police Academy, of course, and Three Men and a Baby. And now he's got new projects out on the way. Steve, thanks so much for joining us right now. My pleasure, man. Glad to be here. What is the latest, you know, for those, like I said, who are, who are maybe swept up in nostalgia like myself, all right, what's Steve Gutenberg been up to? What has the last little stretch been like? And then we'll, we'll get into your latest projects. Man, uh, life has been great as an actor. Um, I started out professionally when I was 17 and uh, haven't been a waiter since I'm 18. <laughs> um, and uh, it's been a great life. You know, uh, I've gotten to work with people that I want to work with and, and got to do most of the roles that I've always wanted to do. Two of the roles that I would love to do and will is Willie Loman and to do Lear. But um, I've been really lucky in my career and have had a great time. And it's not only been a, a charge creatively, it's provided for my family and, uh, and my friends and a certain amount of security and, opportunities that we never would have gotten if I was, uh, you know, working for the town, driving a truck. <laughs> well, it's well said, because you're right, Steve. There's so many actors who maybe they are not major names, but obviously they, they, they make a living by it. And that's the most important thing. If you can do what you love, be an actor and make it worthwhile, that's what makes sense. What is it about Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman that's most appealing? Willie Loman is the top of the heap for absolutely an American role for uh, a man going into his 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. It's about life and about the realities of society. And it's a journey not only for the father, Willie Loman, but for his wife and his children. And it's a, a complicated story um, based here in New York, and it's something that um, is true to my heart. And Lear. You know, uh, you, you have to spend your whole life memorizing Lear to get Lear. I, I saw John Lithgow do it, I think it was last year, at the Public in Central Park. I think it was last year or year before, and he was just fantastic. Anybody who takes on Lear is the greatest. Uh, it's the greatest accomplishment as an actor. That's what you want to do, you know, before you, uh, you know, go to that big uh, hole in the sky. <laughs> yeah, we're talking right now with Steve Gutenberg. Just to further the point on Death of a Salesman, I remember seeing it with Philip Seymour Hoffman on, on Broadway, and I was mesmerized. Oh, listen, man. How about uh, who played his son, that scene Andrew where uh, 
uh, on Andrew Garfield when when he finds his father with the other woman. Oh, oh my God, what a scene! <laughs> right? Well, I mean, it was that. that it's that's unreal because I mean. again, you're a young guy too, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, and people often identify, right? They think of Dustin Hoffman and how great he was, and, and not that he wasn't. Yeah. But the fact that Mike Nichols said, "No, you can cast a younger actor," specifically what you're mentioning, so the flashback scenes would seem more realistic. Uh, everything was, you know, it's a great play. You know, it's the great, it's one of the greatest American plays, and is absolutely the greatest American male role. So, you know, um, that's the reason why everybody wants to do it. Which brings us to Fallers on HBO the 23rd, coming up Sunday. Uh, how did I get that transition? But, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to tell you, I did had a great time on Ballers and just a great cast and crew, directors, and, you know, um, just uh, what, what, a, what, a, what a great opportunity for me. And as an actor, as you get older, you're looking for those great roles. And uh, they gave me a great role in a, a guy named Wayne Hastings Jr., who's a pretentious, self-absorbed, selfish guy who was born on third base, thinks he hit a triple, um, <laughs> and a real villain uh, against Dwayne Johnson's character, Spencer, and his company. And it was just a terrific shooting experience. Really great. Yeah. Do you find, I mean, what is it like now for an actor navigating between not only the stage, but film and television? I mean, there's people keep saying like this is the golden age of TV. It's never been better. And then obviously the allure of film and, as you mentioned, stage productions, which can be so powerful as well. How do you navigate all that? You just have a good time and enjoy yourself and keep learning. The key for any actor is to keep learning. Every job you learn on, every role you learn on. You keep your eyes open. You find, you steal from the best. Uh, it's very, very important to keep growing as an actor. So whether you're on stage or whether you're doing television or whether you're doing film on the big screen, your acting craft is uh, similar. And you have to learn how to move it in different directions with different resonance and, and different timber, whether you're on the stage, television, and film. There's a different craft involved, and that's what's interesting about being an actor is practicing your craft and in each of the different medias. It's just a terrific time for an actor, I think. No, no question. I know you're still really prolific as we're talking about all these projects you have on the go, but if, if you'll indulge me a little bit, I'm just, I love all those movies of the 80s you made, particularly Diner. 1982, it comes out. It's such a resonant comedy. I think it was a forerunner to Swingers and Entourage and all these male buddy movies and, of course, Barry Levinson's direction. What do you think about that film? What was that film experience like? Well, I was very fortunate to be in Diner and have Barry Levinson direct me and to be working among Peter Sobo, the incredible cinematographer, and uh, the cast was the best uh, you could have. Uh, we were all hungry and competitive and professional, and it was a recipe for great success. And, and Vanity Fair chose it as its best movie in the last 30 years, which was a terrific, terrific kudo for us. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, as a sports fan working at ESPN, there was nothing funnier than the fact that Daniel Stern's given his wife a sports quiz to make sure that he can marry her. It was amazing. Also, just to... <laughs> Throw this at you. Syracuse quarterback Zach Mahoney was playing, you know, for the Orange Cup a year ago, and I was doing the broadcast. And of course, immediately people hear Mahoney and they think about your immortal character in Police Academy. It gets, it's, yeah, right. right. It's one of those names, especially in sports. Right, you hear a name, and you go, oh, Zach Mahoney. Wait, Mahoney, Police Academy. Are you amazed, like, how much Police Academy still holds weight? Like, in terms of me saying it, I was like, well, I don't know how many people are going to get this, and everybody, of course, got it because they all remember and love Police Academy. I'm thrilled that. It's still in the zeitgeist, and it's still part of our tapestry. And uh, as, as comedy films go, it, it really holds up. The director, Hugh Wilson, and the producer, Paul Maslansky, were really smart. Neil Israel, Pat Croft, the writers, really smart guys on the first one. And they made a classic Campbellian myth. If you know Joseph Campbell's teachings, it's all about the story structure. And they made great story structure and great characters. And... You know, like watching The Graduate or watching, uh, you know, Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello or watching The Three Stooges or watching Birth of a Nation or, you know, The Great Escape. And, you know, you go on and on. All good movies hold up. And I'm just fortunate to be in it. You know, I'm an actor and I'm an actor for hire. So sometimes, you know, I hit a triple 
Sometimes <laughs> I home run, and sometimes I ground out or I hit a foul ball. You know, you, you just got to get lucky. And Police Academy was one of those really lucky movies for me. I'm so fortunate to have, have been part of it. And it spawned, uh, you know, seven, six sequels. Uh, and it was a very commercial film, and that gave my family and friends and everybody at Warner Brothers a little bit more financial security. Steve Greenberg, check him out on Ballers and on the stage as well. Thank you so much for the time here in Cinefa. I really appreciate it, man. Continued success. Thanks. I appreciate it, and be well. So that was Steve Gutenberg, and listen, for all you broadcasting students out there, here is an example of what to do and what not to do. So before we do the interview, Dan had, had emailed me and just said that we're going to have Steve Gutenberg interested. I said, sure. Now, I didn't know what Steve Gutenberg was up to. But, of course, I take the interviews. I want to talk Police Academy, Short Circuit, et cetera. So normally when they call in, you literally just go, hey, Steve, it's Adnan, you got me. He's like, yeah, I got you. I'm like, great. And then you go and do it. But I, like an idiot, said, hey, Steve, how are you? good. And I said, oh, I'm a huge fan. Love those 80s movies. And I said, hey, I don't know what you've been up to, but, like, whatever you have coming out, make sure you plug it, and then we'll talk about some of the other stuff you did in the past. And he goes, oh. And he goes, I'm not much of a memory lane kind of guy. Like, I hope that's not why you took the interview. So now I'm perplexed, and I go, uh, well, that's kind of all I want to talk to you about. Like, now, now I'm, I'm, I mean, whatever you're up to, that's great. Listen, we'll plug whatever it is, but, like, you ask Levitard, when they have Wayne Newton on, they want to talk about Elvis. When they had Don Rickles on, I want to talk about Sinatra. Like, we'll, we'll plug whatever you got after everything. But look, when Will Arnett was here, remember I asked Dan, I said, do I have to ask about industry? He goes, no, I'll just keep mentioning it. But if you want to just talk arrest development, I mean, that's fine. You want to talk about whatever you want to talk about. So I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll just slip one in at the end. So now I'm, I feel bad because I'm like, well, I don't want to. I mean, I want to be a gracious host here if he doesn't want to get into that stuff. But in my head, I'm like, that's all I want to ask him about. So as you heard in the interview, there's there's talk about ballers, which I wouldn't know about. We talked about plays. And listen, he's an engaging guy. It was a nice conversation. But if you're wondering, why didn't I ask him about short circuit? Well, there's why. Like, I was like, I just, like, I would have gone police academy for five minutes. But I felt like, all right, just get him one. Don't want to get into it too much. So in future, that's why you don't say anything. You just go, hey, can you hear me? Great. Thanks for doing this. And then just roll. Because then... If he didn't like those questions, I mean, he wouldn't have had a choice at that point. He could have just been curt with his answers. But thanks to Steve Gutenberg for playing along. Rather than actor's showcase, we're going to go with director's showcase. In honor of Christopher Nolan, his top five films. Lots of worthy choices. And shout out to my friend Owen Gleiberman, the chief film critic with Variety, who was great. And he did a list of his Nolan films, which is what we're clearly cribbing from here. If you have time, seriously, go read Owen's because his... Description of each of his films was excellent, and uh, I particularly enjoyed his description of Inception, which I'm putting at number five because I don't get the hype as much as Dan, Saruti, my brother, everybody else, and, and Gleiberman, uh, Gleiberman, excuse me, you know, perfectly writes in there. He's like, I've seen it three or four times, and I'm still confused by it. I still don't think it wholly makes up sense, and that's my issue with it. I, as much as I love the fact that it's brave and innovative and uh, thought-provoking, I still, at times, I'm clueless as to what's going on. You would say better concept than it is a movie. Thank you. Number four, I'm going to go with Insomnia, which, as Gleiberman points out, is probably uh, Nolan's most straightforward thriller. In fact, it's, you know, I wouldn't, it follows a regular template of, you know, a cop trying to chase down the bad guy. But what makes it special is because it's Nolan, because uh, I think he breathes kind of fresh life into a well-worn genre, this cop who's struggling with guilt. It's an adaptation also of another film. He gets Pacino's best performance in years. Uh, came out in 2001. He arguably one of Robin Williams' best movies. I ranked him as one of my favorites of Robin's uh, as the villain who's just so uh, quiet and subtle. And Hilary Swank's also really good as well. So you got Chris Nolan with directing three Academy Award winners, and I think it really is a, an excellent thriller, particularly the sequence in The Floating Logs. That's Nolan thinking outside the box. Okay, it's a conventional thriller. I've got to have a good chase sequence. All right, it's in Alaska, and I've got them running over floating logs. Very... Uh, Unique thought there. Number three is The Dark Knight. Despite Dan's point that maybe it doesn't hold up as much as it used to, great crime film. Owen had it number one on his list. Really set the template for so many superhero movies. Um, obviously, Heath Ledger, incredible as, as the Joker. The entire scope of it, the, 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 the vision. Now I, I'd be curious if I went back and watched the Tim Burton movies. Maybe I'd laugh at those. They'd feel cartoonish because I love those films for being so dark. But obviously, The Dark Knight and, and what Nolan did with his trilogy uh, clearly took the genre much further forward. Number two is Dunkirk. We need a little bit of time here, right, to see how it how it feels over time. I want to I'd like to go see it a second time, maybe. But I think right now, at least on its own, I think it's I think it might be one of his best films. And number one is Memento. 
for me, I just love the originality of it, the mind-bending story, the fact he's taking a movie and telling it backwards to forwards with Guy Pierce and Joe Pantoliano. To me, it marked the beginning of a fresh new voice, a great new filmmaker, much like in the way I really love Requiem for a Dream when I think about Darren Aronofsky, even though some might like other films of his more. To me, it's, you know, that's, that is the inception of the great filmmaker. So for me, Nolan is like Memento's tipping point. Mean Streets for Scorsese, Jaws for Spielberg. So to me, Memento always holds a special place in my heart. Because every time I think about it, I say, wow, I'd never said anything like that. Christopher Nolan's top five. Memento, Dunkirk, Dark Knight, Insomnia, Inception. Dan is irate. The Prestige did not make the cut. Yeah, no Prestige, which is a big, glaring omission that you had. <laughs> and I also liked Glaberman's point about The Dark Knight Rises. He goes, on its own, it's a fine movie. It's very good. But the yeah. bar was set so high with The Dark Knight yeah. that it almost pales in comparison, which is, you know, you're held to the standard of the work that you create. And so that's kind of what happened to Nolan. Right. Real simple. Bane's just not as good as Joker. Everything else that's is great. It. Your, yeah. villain, like your villain's not as good. The guy's got a mask over his face. Like, it's you know, big brawny guy, talks like a 70-year-old British man. So you're five. You would have Prestige, obviously. You'd have Inception at one. Yeah, Inception one, Dark Prestige Knight. two, Dark Knight three. I liked Memento too. You know, I, yeah, I liked Insomnia. Dunk. I I think the early returns on Dunkirk are good, but I, like you said, I think it's probably too early to just right. throw it at number two. That may have been a little haphazard on your part, but you know, prisoner of the moment, <laughs> as you will. Speaking of directors, Malcolm Lee is a director of Girls Trip, which is a huge hit. I mean, give it up right now for Girls Trip. I haven't seen the movie yet, but Malcolm was kind enough to spend a few minutes with us. Take a listen here on Cinephile. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. We love talking to actors, writers, and especially directors. Speaking of a guy who's got a lot of talent, Malcolm Lee joins us right now. He has perhaps a surprise hit of the summer. Great opening weekend of $31 million, second behind only Dunkirk. Malcolm, thanks so much for coming on with us today, man. My pleasure. Thank you so much. What's your reaction when you saw the box office receipt? I'm sure, listen, you want high expectations, you're proud of the film you've made, but 88% positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, didn't you have that kind of an opening? What was your reaction? Yeah, it's really, really gratified. You know, um, you, you, you do your best to try to make the best movie possible. You hope people, uh, hope it resonates with people and people laugh. Um, and what I thought was when the critics, you know, were, were coming in the way they, they did, I thought they get it. They understand what we were trying to do and they enjoyed it and, you know, they understood what the, what this movie meant for a lot of people, and it, it made that, that my my hard work paid off. So I'm, I'm very 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 gratified about that. And then the box office, you know, you're always trying to say, okay, well, how are we going to do? Like, are we going to? Are we gonna, is, is our number going to have a three in front of it? Is it going to have a two in front of it? <laughs> I thought two, yeah, not, not. I would have been disappointed. I, I'll be very honest. Um, but you know, when when we reached that that you know that 31 number, and as we thought, even. From the beginning, it was going to be oh, it was twenty five, and then it would get to be like twenty eight. Then as, you, as the weekend's going, like okay, I think we're going to get get to thirty. So we did. We got to thirty, and then we got to thirty one. It was even more gratifying. So really, really happy that people came out and supported, and uh, really loved the movie. And so I was getting hearing things where people were seeing the movie twice in one day, not just you know <laughs> twice the, during a weekend, but they were seeing it twice in one day, which is really fantastic. I love this blurb from Julia Cooper of the Globe and Mail. There is no raunchier, more raucous, filthy, and truly crass movie out there this summer than Girls Trip, and I loved every minute of it. What do you think of when you hear that review? <laughs> I love it. I love hearing that that, that kind of stuff. Especially, now, if it didn't have, and I loved it, that would have been kind of you know disappointing to uh, <laughs> just to, to to hear that. All those you know, superlatives uh, uh, and, and you know, those negative superlatives. So, but yeah, no, I, I, I love it. I mean, listen, I think we, we definitely pushed the envelope. We didn't want to uh, hide anything. We didn't want to, um, you know, put shackles on ourselves. We want to say, okay, let's just go for it and do the stuff that we think will be representative of these group of women that are that are in, in on screen. What is it like working with Regina Hall, Queen Latifah, Jada Pinkett Smith, Tiffany Haddish, obviously talented actresses, but for you as a male director, all-female cast, what is that like? You know, I've, I've had a, the, the pleasure of working with uh, a, a lot of female um, uh, actors in, in my life. So, so, And, you know, I, I got, my wife keeps me in check a lot. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I take out the garbage. I go to Costco to pick up, you know, uh, groceries, you know. So I, I, I got people got me in check. I think that in working with these women, you know, Regina and I, this is our fourth film together. Uh, it was ready. She was ready to, t to take on, you know, the leading lady role. She's been the supporting um, 
you know, friend or wife or sister or what have you. And uh, for so long, it was time for a step into that role with Jada and, and Queen. It was great to, you know, reunite them from, from, um, from set it off 20 years ago. And, you know, listen, it, and Tiffany, of course, is, is, is a revelation. She's a, she's a whirling dervish. Um, you know, I, I think you treat them like, like, like anyone. They're actors. They, they, they have um, their thoughts. They have their ideas. And you respect that, you know, because, listen, I am, I'm, not a, I'm not a woman. Uh, but I, I, I try. I try to be. I come from a perspective of what's the best storytelling. What's, what what are the character arcs that we're trying to achieve here? And they can fill in the specifics, you know, um, because they they know what it's like to be a woman and, to, and how women are viewed, and how women uh, women view one another, uh, and how they are viewed in the world. So you know, you, you, you do a little step back. You do do a little step back, you know, and say, okay, what do you think here? And you know, we had rehearsal sessions that allowed us to come up with those relationships and how, who those, these women were to, you know, together, who they were to one another uh, and, what, and what the uh, family was. Because here's the thing, with any movie, any comedy, you re- I really strive to make sure that we care about the characters. You care about the characters, you're going to then uh, be invested in them. And the laughs that, that, that would be there would be even greater if you care about their relationship and who these people are as characters. And, and if there's some relatability to it, it makes it that much better. Do you call Queen Latifah Queen when you're on set? She likes to be called La. So I call her La. <laughs> nice. You know, some people call her Queen, but I call her La. And, 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 or sometimes Dana. That's, her, that's her, 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 her real name. Her government name. <laughs> so yeah, we call I call her lot. Yeah, she just seems like a force of nature. Give me give me a story about her on set, her power. You know, Latifa, she just you know attracts attention wherever she goes. She's tall, she's regal, she's aptly named Queen because she, you know, she's got that kind of like royalty about her. And she's really down to earth. She's very fun. I don't remember any kind of thing specific that she did, but I remember like like and you see it in, in the movie. You know, there's, there's, there's every woman goes across the zip line, right? Mm-hmm. And she only was going to do it once, um, not not because she didn't want to do it more, more than once, but like she wasn't the featured thing in that in that, uh, in that in that in that set piece. But she just found her own way of being funny and and and, and having her being so invested in her character to be scared at first. And then you know, freak out, legs wide up, wide up in the air, and landing on the, the, the you know the guy that, that that receives her, and she's like you know like grinding on him afterwards. So <laughs> it's like a really like she just you know, having all that sitcom training on living single really prepared her for you know her, her comedy chops. And so you know it was a blessing. I I, I, I almost forgot that she had that training, mm-hmm. and you know uh, could bring that to the to the fore. You've directed films, Malcolm, Undercover Brother, The Best Man, Roll Bounce, Welcome Home, Roscoe Jenkins, Soul Men. I'm curious, how conscious of you are making films for African-American audiences, you know, with that experience in there? Or is it a situation where you've tried to make other films, but the studios don't give you as much money or financing for films, maybe which are outside of that that lane? You know, um, from the outset of my career, I've always wanted to make so-called African-American movies mainstream. You know, I've always told stories with universal themes, uh, whether it has to do with brotherhood or uh, friendship or, you know, career crossroads, uh, just life stories. And, you know, I'm happy to be telling those kinds of stories um, because they, they're untold stories. They are, you know, these people that, that uh, you know, the so-called African-American, we, we, we are just as American as anyone else. And our stories are just as universal as anyone else's. And so I don't really, I mean, I have a desire to tell stories that are passionate to me. Um, and the, the ones that I've done th- thus far, except for Scary Movie 5, are ones that I really were, you know, was fully invested in. Um, and so could there be a day where I, where I have a more diverse cast? Absolutely. But right now, the stories that I, I want to tell the stories that move me. And I, I feel like I can bring something to the table, too. Well, certainly you've proven yourself as a director of Nope, but you're also a cousin of Spike Lee, who obviously was so influential in as a director in this country. What's your relationship like with Spike? What was he able to pass on to you as a director? You know, he lived in, in my family's house um, when he was in film school. So at the age of 13, I, I got to see the, the emergence of a great American filmmaker uh, and one that was in my family and really kind of showed me that it can be done just by example. And I got an opportunity to uh, work with him since the age of 17, you know, being a production assistant and then, you know, get an opportunity to be a casting associate, and an assistant director. And, 
editing apprentice. Um, and then, you know, finally made my own way, you know, also got to be his director's assistant to really observe. And, 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 and he always encouraged me to write and to, you know, to make movies and to, and to make black film and to, and always have a consciousness about me when it came to images of African-Americans. And so I always kind of kept that, um, you know, in the back of my mind and really at the forefront, you know, in my, in my, in my, in my consciousness, because that's the kind of family I came from anyway. And so when I saw that somebody in my family could actually break into the movie industry, it kind of encapsulated all my interests. And he was, you know, very instrumental. And even to this day, you know, with, with his advice and with, you know, uh, uh, mentorship. So, you know, I'm very grateful uh, to Spike. What's the next project we can look forward to? What are you working on now? I'm getting ready. I'm gearing up to do um, a movie with Kevin Hart called Night School. Um, it's about a bunch of guys and women who uh go going back for this their ged and you know trying to get a second chance in life and i think it's a very relevant and real thing uh right now in the country where you know people are losing their jobs they're they're, they're, they're not make being able to make ends meet and they got to make a change in their life and sometimes they want they need to go back you know and, and and reinvent themselves and so i think you know even though you know we are a comedy we're going to say something you know my that's that's always my goal not not just be funny but you know let it resonate with folks as well yeah, like you said, it's got to be funny, but it actually has to have a genuine story. And Kevin Hart actually visited us here at ESPN, and he was he was terrific, as are you. Malcolm Lee, the director of the new film, Girl's Trip. Make sure you check it out. Obviously, it's a huge hit, which I'm thrilled to hear. And uh, really appreciate the time, man. Be well. Adam, you're the best, man. I appreciate you. Streaming Suggestions. Currently on Netflix, make sure you see Bad Santa. I really wanted to get into the best of the decade, just for my buddy Justin Havens. Best of the century, excuse me. It's such a funny movie. I met somebody who hated that movie. Michelle Smallman, producer of Priscilla's show, hated Bad Santa. I'm like, what? How could you be a Grinch and not love that movie? Foul-mouthed, Christmas spirit. Also, Mark Stanzik, Dan's dad. I don't know if he hates it, but he was appalled that it's my favorite Christmas movie. I'd go hate. Yeah, so he also, we have two people who hated Bad Santa. Why Mark Stanzik and Michelle Smallman are wrong, check out Bad Santa. It's hysterical. Billy Bob Thornton, one of his best performances. By the way, Billy Bob, uh, other podcasts, he's on um, Scott Feinberg's podcast, The Hollywood Reporter. Great. Hour-plus interview. I can never get tired of Billy Bob Thornton interviews. Tells funny stories, his beginnings, lousy jobs he had. Talks about Angelina. Awesome. Listen to that when you have some time. The Founder, um, which I'd reviewed previously I think it's all right. I recommend it for Michael Keaton's performance, The Origins of McDonald's, where I worked in high school for two and a half years. And, of course, it uh, it's a story that has been told before, but I think if you don't know just how malicious jerk Ray Kroc was, perhaps this movie will be an eye-opener for you. I'm just not a big fan of the director, John Lee Hancock. I find his movies are very rote. And Jackie Brown, one of Tarantino's most underrated movies, as we shift to Actors Showcase, I'm sure eventually we'll do a Director's Showcase and do Tarantino. We can dive deeper into Jackie Brown. Robert Forster, nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Great music, of course. Again, maybe much like Nolan, it was tough to match The Dark Knight with The Dark Knight Rises. Jackie Brown came off of Pulp Fiction. I think for many people, they were expecting another Pulp Fiction. It wasn't that. It was much different in terms of mood and temperament. But I thought uh, Pam Greer was great. Uh, of course, QT wrote her a terrific role. De Niro working with Tarantino for the first time. I like Jackie Brown a lot. On Amazon Prime, High Noon, a great Western. Previously, we talked to Rich Sandemir about Pride of the Yankees. High Noon features Gary Cooper in perhaps his most iconic role, a sheriff just trying to save the town from a bunch of bad guys. I love the song, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. It's a beautiful black-and-white western. High Noon makes you see it if you haven't. Super bad, really funny Jonah Hill back in the day. Again, it's kind of like you know the inception of him and Michael Cera and uh, that brand of Judd Apatow comedy, really funny. Only saw it the one time. And Teen Wolf. Hey, if you haven't seen it in a long time, probably the best part of Bill Simmons' book of basketball he points out that if you just watch the scenes of Teen Wolf and extrapolate them, Michael J. Fox's character would have 47 points, 27 steals, 18 rebounds, and 9 blocks. HBO Go adaptation, one of my favorite Nicolas Cage movies. Wildly original, incredibly funny, so smart. Charlie Kaufman script, directed by Spike Jones. Frost Nixon, a movie I know Dan also really appreciates. An adaptation of the play, one of Ron Howard's best movies. Frank Langella has never been better playing Tricky Dick. If the president says it, it's not illegal. Michael Sheen is David Frost as well. And Tango and Cash. What? I've only seen it once. I don't remember anything about it. But you know who loves it? My buddy Stu Gatz. It's his favorite movie of all time. Check out Tango and Cash. It's currently available on HBO Go. 
a Scorsese story. Oftentimes, there are two categories of Scorsese films. Those are the movies that he makes from the heart, and then there are his genre films. Of course, from the heart is Passion Projects, Mean Streets, Gangs of New York, Silence, Goodfellas, and then the movies that others convinced him to do. Uh, Raging Bull, obviously, De Niro had much influence over him. King of Comedy persuaded him to do Taxi Driver, a collaborative effort after De Palma had steered Paul Schrader in his direction. But sometimes Marty makes genre movies. And because he's a lover of films, he wants to do all different types of movies. And that's where Shutter Island fits in. It is a quintessential genre film with shades of Cape Fear. It, it would fit under the category of a psychological thriller and a horror film. And I've seen it three times. I remember I saw it when it was in theaters, and I saw it probably when it came on DVD shortly after, and I watched it again just yesterday. So I've seen it three times. Here's what, what is fascinating about the backstory of it. It was delayed from Oscar consideration. You know, all of Marty's movies, especially post-Bringing Out the Dead, which did come out in November of 98. But once Gangs of New York and Aviator and The Departed, like every time one of Marty's movies coming out, you know it's always November, December, Oscar considers, et cetera. Shutter Island got delayed, which was a huge eyebrow-raising moment, to February 19th, 2010. And I said, oh, God. Maybe this one is a real turkey, because if it was good, it'd be coming out in November, December 2009. And the party line was that Marty needed more time editing, et cetera. And I was like, mm, I, February, the, I can't find any great film that's ever come out in February. Fargo is a great movie. It came out in March. That's one of the few exceptions. Generally, really great. They bury them. So was, when I saw Shutter Island in February 1910, I go, mm. And then I read one story. I was like, listen, this one they're making just for the money. You can hear whatever Marty and, and Leo want to tell you about, but this is one that just making some money with this one, and if it's entertaining, it's good, it's done. Now, as far as critics are concerned, you go back, and I did 40 years of Scorsese movies. This has the lowest ranking on the tomato meter. The lowest, think about that. So King of Comedy, 90%. After Hours, 90%. Last Temptation of Christ, 82. Goodfellas, 97. Age of Innocence, 80. Casino, 80. Kundun, 76. Bringing Out the Dead, 71. Gangs of New York, 75. Aviator, 87. Departed, 91. Hugo, 94. Wolf of Wall Street, 77. Silence, 85%. All of those movies are ranked higher than Shutter Island, which on Rotten Tomatoes has a 68% ranking. The lowest movie that Scorsese's had aside from that would be New York, New York, which I have talked about, I think is unfairly maligned, came out in 1977 at 65%. So I offer that as backstory, that apparently critics did not think this was one of his better movies. For 40 years, this is the one they think is not good. But it did do really well at the box office, even though it came out in February. But I like it a lot. Even though it's not one from the heart, even though I clearly think this is not a movie that he needed to tell, I think when he takes a story like this, you can really feel that he has a kick in telling this story. Particularly he and Robert Richardson, the director, longtime cinematographer of Oliver Stone, you can really feel it. They they must have just sat there and like just rubbed their hands with glee and said, all right, let's storyboard this sucker. There's atmosphere for days in this. A couple shots in particular is a tracking shot of a killing spree during World War II and later on a cliff after Leo goes down to help his partner, Mark Ruffalo, he just sees hundreds of rats. And there's a couple of shots that really stand out. There's no original score. Robbie Robertson, his old friend from the band, he took popular music and main theme. Like The, the main theme sounds like a foghorn. And just blaring at you. The first scene, him and Ruffler on the boat going towards Shutter Island. And burn, burn, keeps coming at you. It's impactful, but it's far from subtle, which would be a good description of this movie. It's letting you know right over the head, this is what this movie's all about. There's not much subtlety in this Scorsese film. Shooting it, Marty said he had a lot of fun because it encourages multiple viewings to see the clues. For example, in the book, Dennis Lehane said the first clue he gives. By the way, spoiler alert. Again, if you haven't seen Shutter Island, I'm going to tell you what it's about. Quickly, did you, the first time you saw it, did you know, or did you read the book before? I read the book. Which was oh, before you saw it. Because uh, okay. yeah, I, I watched the film and did not know, and people afterwards were like, how did you not know? And I'm like, don't tell me you knew. Like, it, I don't think it was that obvious. No, I, I wouldn't have known unless okay. I read the book. Lehane said the first clue he gave was, there's a scene where uh, Ruffalo has to surrender his gun. And he said in the book, he said, like, he has trouble getting it out of his holster. And you see it in the movie. And he goes, like, think about it. If this guy's a federal marshal, like, no problem. Here's your gun. Here's your holster. And you see in the movie, like, he kind of struggles a little bit. Leo kind of looks at him. Mark's like, oh, sorry, hang on. Phew. Because that's the first little clue I gave. Marty said it was a ton of fun, though, because he would encourage, especially the extras. He goes, like, you know, Lahane gave props to Marty for this. He goes, that scene where he, uh, before he hands him the holster, when they first get to the island, Leo says, he goes, oh, your cops seem a little bit on edge here. And he goes, oh, we all are. And he goes, do you think the first time you see it, that they're just 
you know, fearful about what's going on. But the second time you see it, you realize they're terrified of DiCaprio because they realize he's this incredibly violent inmate who they're just letting loose. So that's why all of them, and you see these quick close-ups, are on edge watching him because they're like, what is this guy going to do? Um, and that's why it's fun to watch the movie again. Later on, this scene I love, and Marty said it was a lot of fun to edit it. The older woman is being interrogated, and she's talking about Dr. Sheehan. And she says, Dr. Sheehan, as my mother would say, was easy in the eyes. And Leo pushes, and he goes, oh, did he make a pass at you? And right away, she kind of trembles. She goes, oh, no, 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 nothing like that. And then Marty cuts to a shot of Mark Ruffalo, who, of course, is Dr. Sheehan. And he kind of just gives, like, a little sly smile. Like, mm, it's very sweet of her that she's saying I'm attractive. And, like, don't worry, he's reassuring. So Marty said it was a lot of fun in the cutting. And even Ruffalo said, performance-wise, because, and if you go back again, you'll see there's certain times Kingsley's giving them information, and he's giving a sideways glance to Ben Kingsley. It's all, almost a wink, but not quite. Kind of like, yeah, we've got to keep an eye on this guy. Like, all right, they're coming after us, boss. That kind of stuff. So I, I did think it's a movie that enjoys repeat viewings. My issue with it, as much as I enjoy it, the climax lacks dramatic attention. Like there's another good scene, of course, Jackie Earl Haley, when he's like, who did this to you? He goes, well, you did. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, the latest did this to me. And he goes, this is all for you. You're just a rat in a maze. And when you go back and see it, you go, oh, my God, how much more obvious could this be? But he's like, this is all for you. They're all doing this for you, this entire event that they're doing. But the climax lacks dramatic tension. Essentially, the movie is this. It's a cat and mouse game. Guy's caught in a maze. And eventually, he goes in there. And then Ben Kingsley just explains to him what the movie's about. Like he literally shows him a, he literally shows him a board and goes, look, Andrew Latus, Teddy Daniels. It's an anagram of 13 letters. Rachel Solano, 13 letters. Dolores Chanel. And I'm like, for a movie that's so expertly done, that has such vivid camera work and all the Scorsese hallmarks, I'm like, literally, the movie has to just be explained to you. Having said that, then there's a haunting flashback, which is the high point of the movie, and then that final coda. He goes back and sees where Michelle Williams drowned his three kids, his reaction to it, and then that final scene where they explain to him, like, we need to have you admit that you know what this is. Otherwise, he's going to be lobotomized. He's like, yep, yeah, this is who I am. My name is Andrew Latus. My wife is manic depressive. She drowned our three kids, you know, and I can't live with it. I can't face it. So they're like, all right, if, if, if you accept it, then you're okay, but otherwise he's going to be lobotomized. So he goes out, and then he sees Ruffalo, and he just says, he goes, all right, so how are we doing? He goes, we got to get out of here, man. We got to get off this island. And he's like, yeah, I hear you, boss. And you see Ruffalo look at Max von Sydow, who, by the way, you get Max von Sydow in a movie like this, like, that is right up Marty's alley. B-movie, horror thriller, psychological thriller. Max von Sydow, this chilling actor. And you see the look on Kingsley's face, like, oh, I'm going to have to lobotomize him. And you go, oh, man, he's not fixed. But then Leo says that pivotal line. He goes, hey, do you think it's better to live like a monster or die an honorable man? And that's where, he, I mean, that's the hook of the movie. Like, he, he knows what he's done. He knows what he's doing now. He's willingly going to be lobotomized because he cannot live with the grief and the pain of, of what has happened in his life. And Scorsese said that was the hook for him, which, again, if you go to Marty, like, all right, themes, guilt, redemption, like, you can see how he would be appealed to that story. He said when he first read the script, he had something to do the next morning, and he literally could not put it down. He said he was up till 4 in the morning just trying to find out how the hell this movie ends, so they wanted to end up making it. So I, I like Shutter Island a lot. I give it three and a half Maple Leafs. I think in Scorsese one-on-one college classes, it's not one that's going to be dissected, but I think there's nothing wrong with making an entertaining film like that, which he certainly accomplished with Shutter Island. Dan? My cousin, who I was with on vacation this past week, told me it's his favorite Scorsese film, and I had never heard anyone say that before. He said, unpopular opinion, Shutter Island's my favorite of Scorsese's. I said, oh, I don't think many people would agree with that, but okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a big, sh- big fan of the podcast, though. Colin Meehan, what's up? My brother has it top five Scorsese, which already blew my mind. I don't know anybody else who's a big Scorsese fan who has it that high. For Colin to have it number one, uh, that's astonishing. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. Thanks to our guest, director Malcolm Lee. Go check out Girls Trip. Thanks to Steve Gutenberg. Check him out on Ballers. And go watch Dunkirk in 70mm IMAX. For Dan Stanzik, I'm Adnan Burke. I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.